Well, if you, if you are a fan of the Gladiator, you're saying, why in the world are you showing that in church this morning? That was very violent. Uh, my Easter has been ruined. Because many of us, when we see uh, a passion or a retelling of the story of, of Jesus on the cross, we see some guy with the British accent as a centurion saying, uh, he truly was the Son of God. The Romans were an incredibly violent culture, filled with violence. And the centurion were incredible warriors. So this morning, when we look at how Jesus creates a custom home approach to drawing a centurion to come to believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it is an unheard of story. And this is a guy, the centurion, who would be a, a leader of a hundred men. The death rate among centurions was often much higher than the normal soldier because they always led the men into battle on the battlefront. They were men uh, who had to be incredibly smart, both administrators and warriors. They kept track of the, of the codes within the camps. They were decorated with medals, necklaces, their shields. Even their helmets were different. A centurion often had the sign of the peacock, the, the cascade or fanfare of Rome. This guy has seen hundreds, tens of thousands of people killed during his lifetime. At no time did he look at the cross and go, Aw, look at that guy dying. He's the one who crucified them. He's the one who put them there. And yet Jesus will create a customized approach to how he dies that will grab the attention of General Maximus. You see, the soldiers led Jesus up to a place called Golgotha. They will place a crown of thorns upon his head to make him a mock king. They will put him upon that cross. And this soldier... General Maximus, a centurion, will see something he has never seen before in having a man die an honorable death. Something that will get him to say, truly that was the Son of God. So I'll take a few moments together as we watch with that centurion, a man who was the doctor of death, a man who saw people die in any and every way and was part of the killing of folks, what he might have seen, what he might have experienced that day that grabbed his attention. So join me back in Rome, join me in Israel, as the Romans have taken over all of Jerusalem. Two million people have poured into the Super Bowl of their day called Passover. As this soldier stands unmoved like a thousand other, a hundred people probably killed just that day by crucifixion. And yet he looks up and sees something he's never seen before, hanging on the cross. Thank Mark for his work. Thank you, man. See, that, uh, that centurion is indeed thunderstruck by what happens. And it's not just the darkness. It's not just the earthquake. But when he looks upon this man on the cross, he's seen hundreds of these men die, thousands of these men die, but never with their head held high. You see, crucifixion involved pounding a stake through your feet where you had to push up just to get air. And so you would have to push up just to get enough air to breathe. And so your head was hung over and you're, <gasps> as you just took a breath. And then you'd 
collapsed under the suffocation of that, feel the pain again. So you went from being writhing in pain from the stake they pounded into your feet to suffocating to death because you couldn't breathe. No one held their head high. Everyone just sort of collapsed into a heap. And this doctor of a death is immune to pain. He has seen many, many people die. He's heard them whine. He's heard them complain. He's heard them curse Rome. He's heard them curse God. He is unmoved, untouched by the emotion or the torture of death. In fact, they designed the crucifixion to be an instrument of death. It was designed to make you die as slowly as possible over as long a time as possible. And they stacked them up on the roads to, to Rome and to Jerusalem. So when you saw the people crucified, it basically said, don't mess with Rome or this is what we do to you. And this incredible warrior's warrior and man's man will watch Jesus die in the most compelling, customized way he's ever seen before. See, crucifixion was designed to break you down. But crucifixion did not break Jesus down. It brought Jesus out. The kind of pain that would come out of a man, the kind of screams that came out of a man on the cross, were so significant they had to invent a brand new word. We get the word excruciating from that. But the word excruciating literally means out of the cross. Because the kind of pain, the kind of noise that came out of you as you were trying to push yourself up to breathe was so excruciating they invented a new word. And because Passover was a celebration of a time when God had delivered the people from Egyptian bondage many, many years ago, the Romans wanted to make sure on this particular day, that's why they crucified so many people, then nobody even thought that God would deliver them from Roman occupation. And as the centurion watches Jesus on the cross, he doesn't see a victim, though he's been victimized. He doesn't see somebody who's, who's whining or complaining or cursing the gods. He sees a man in command. He's never seen a man in command while he's being crucified. There's an old phrase that says, you find out what people are like when you dip them in hot water. Because people are like tea bags. You find out what's in us when you put us in hot water. And here in the hottest of water, in the most torturous device ever invented uh, for torturing, exploiting people by the Romans at the cross, we see Jesus dipped into the hot water and we see what comes out of him is a man in command. The first thing the centurion must have been struck by is that this was a man in command of death. Now, because we're not necessarily familiar with crucifixion, it may not strike us. But what he witnesses, he's never seen before. A man in command of death. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice. No one cried out in a loud voice. You were just pushing up on that nail to get <coughs> just a little breath. If you talked, it would be cursing your gods, cursing the Romans. You could never get enough breath to cry out in a loud voice. He's never seen anyone with his head held high, crying out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachakan, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But even that is Jesus looking to the people and saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a book written in the Old Testament that tells exactly why I'm here. And it starts off with those words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is my purpose. 
This is my command. This is what I've lived for. This is what I've come for. And he stands on that cross crying out. You want to know why I'm here? My God, my God. It's the first line of where you should be looking to explain why I'm here. Many didn't get it. Well, maybe he's calling out to Elijah. The Roman is struck. The centurion is struck. He's never seen anyone with a head held high on a cross crying out in a loud voice. He mentions it again. Again. One of the other things is Jesus pushes up on that nail. The second thing he says is Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. He said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Again, a man in command. Talking to his father. I'm in command. I'm right now choosing to give you my spirit. I'm right now choosing to, to, to the time I'm going to die. The Romans don't choose when I die. I choose when I die. And having said this, he breathed his last. He picked the time of his death and he says it in a loud voice. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when the centurion saw what had happened, a guy crying out in a loud voice, as if he's a man in command on the cross itself, it's then he glorified. He, the centurion, he, General Maximus, glorifies God. Not the gods of the Romans and Greeks. He had lots of them. He glorified God, the one this rabbi is speaking of, and said, surely this was a righteous man. More than that, Jesus is so in tune, despite the pain, despite the torture, he's so in tune that he is here for a purpose that he is made for, that he is scrolling through his mind all the different Old Testament prophecies yet to be fulfilled. And in his mind, he comes across Psalm 69. They offered him vinegar and he refused them. And so, while on the cross, looking around, scrolling in his head through everything yet to be fulfilled, he said, ah, I thirst. To which they offer him a sponge filled with vinegar, sour wine. And then he cries out with head still held high, as you'll see in a moment, it is finished. This is why I'm here. You think, you're, you think you've crucified me? You think you're, you're the oppressor here? No, this is exactly where I want to be. It's exactly what I planned for for the last three years. So much so, look what it says. He bowed his head before he gave up his spirit. Well, if he has to bow his head, where was his head before? Erect, high, commanding on the cross. And this centurion is like, I have never seen an honorable death like this. I've never seen somebody in command on the very instrument we designed to torture people. Now, last year for Easter, perhaps you read a book by Bill O'Reilly called Killing Jesus. He's written a Killing Reagan series and a Killing uh, Several Kennedy and Killing Jesus. Bill O'Reilly in this book says that there's no way Jesus said anything on the cross. He said, according to the most modern of scholarship, it would be impossible to speak on the cross. So all that was urban legend added in later. But we have four different historic documents that cite that this happened. And two, the Romans invented the term excruciating because things came out of people's mouths when they were crucified. That's where the term came from. So I just think Bill's wrong in a lot of accounts. But he was right that most victims were so weak they didn't endure the torture of the scourging post, let alone to hang on the cross. Jesus was so strong, so commanding, so powerful in his death that he could push up on that nail and scream out with a loud voice, this is what I'm here for. This is why I came. This is what I'm about. So much so that not just one centurion, but several soldiers turn like, what is that? I have never seen that before. It's amazing how how you encounter death can uh, draw you 
or push you away from God. A good friend of mine started coming uh, 15 years ago to the church, and he said he was pretty much agnostic at best, wasn't really interested in spiritual things. He said the catalyst to his journey was holding the hand of his mother when she passed away. He didn't believe there was anything in this world except what you can touch. He said, I was sitting there with my mom, and as she died, all of a sudden, her body, her face, her eyes, something was missing. And I realized nothing had changed. The matter was still here. The energy was still here. Watching my mother die, he said, put me on a spiritual journey that there must be something more to this world, things you can't see. And he began a journey of coming to Horizon and eventually coming to be a follower of Christ. But he'd say it all began as I experienced what death looked like. If you are here a few weeks ago, you heard Josh tell the story about his father fighting cancer. Now his father, in the face of death, had such hope, such honor, such peace, that his friends would, who didn't even believe the way he believed said, Aren't you scared? Aren't you terrified? And he would say, I got my bags packed and know where I'm going. Man, I hope, I hope I have that kind of honor. I hope I have that kind of courage. I hope I have that kind of courageousness. There's something about facing death and seeing somebody who has purpose in the face of death that is compelling. Maybe you know the story of a General Stonewall Jackson. He, too, was a follower of Christ. And he has a, a terrible battle in which he gets his arm uh, cut off because of the damage related to it. And so his arm on May 2nd of 1863 has to be amputated. So much so that they buried his arm the next day. So you can go to a graveyard and you can find his arm buried on May 3rd, the next day at 1863, though he won't be buried for years later. With his arm just cut off, one of his uh, commanders or lieutenants came into uh, the area, saw his arm amputated and said, Oh my goodness, what a calamity! To which General Jackson, speaking of his faith and trust in Christ, said, I am wounded, but I am not unhappy. And I'm not depressed. You may think it's strange, but you will never see me more perfectly contented than I am right now today. You lost your arm. I mean, this is truly the definition of how to disarm somebody. And how in the world does he have contentment and peace and power? And this guy's like, wow, not only is he a great commander, he's got something I don't. I want to be a man in command of death. I want to follow a man in command of death. And Roman centurions were used to following people of honor, being people of honor. For him to grab the attention, he said, now that's a person worthy of my life. Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, was an agnostic. He was uh, living during the time of the 1700s and just had a big party. Everybody came over to the party and he's just mocking Christians, mocking Christianity, making fun of the, the ridiculous people of the book who believe this stuff is true. And one of his commanders steps up. General von Zeeland, one of his most trusted officers, was a devout Christian. It was during a festive gathering the king began making crude jokes about Christ until everyone was rocking with laughter, all except von Zeeland. Finally, he arose and he addressed the king. Sire, you know that I have not feared death. I have fought and won 38 battles for you. I'm an old man, and I shall soon have to go into the presence of one greater than you, the mighty God who saved me from my sin, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you're blaspheming. I salute you, sir, as an old man who loves his Savior on the edge of eternity. The place went silent. With a trembling voice, this king, 
recognizing an honorable warrior who had served him faithfully, said General von Zeeland, I beg your pardon. I beg your pardon. And with that, the party quietly ended. A warrior's warrior, a man's man, a man in command of death, is what he saw on the cross. The second thing he was in command of is he was a man in command of forgiveness. I mean, the the centurion has never seen anyone offer forgiveness to Rome or the Romans or his enemies on the cross. Oh, a lot of things were, were, were murmured and whispered out of the mouths of those about Rome, but none of them were forgiveness. Notice it says the soldiers, when they, the soldiers, had come to the place called Calvary, there they, the soldiers, crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. But notice a continued use of the word they. Then Jesus said, as he pushed up on that nail one more time, Father, forgive them. Who's the them? The soldiers. The very people who pounded those stakes into his hands and into his feet. I'm sure it applied to everyone, but the they in the passage here is applying to the very people who brought him there. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And then they, the soldiers, divided his garments and cast lots. The soldier, already struck by a man who's got his head held high, commanding death, is now struck by a man who's absolutely in command of a kind of forgiveness he has never seen before, never experienced before, never come across before, never tasted before. Somebody who could command forgiveness and in the face of crucifixion, look into the very people crucifying him and say, I forgive you and I pray to my God that he would forgive you. You don't know what you're doing here. I know what I'm doing. I'm dying for you who's doing this to me powerful it's commanding it's striking it's honorable in a way that a roman wouldn't even know to think it was honorable until he saw it he's like whoa what is that it's a book called the son of hamas it's written by the guy who is the son of the founder of hamas his name is masab hassan yosef his father began the group called hamas and he was very much active in hamas with his father so much so that he was kidnapped and taken to Israel because of all the bombings that were being done against the state of Israel. And so the, the CIA uh, organization of Israel was, was uh, basically pushing him and trying to extract information on when the next attack was coming. He escaped or was released, I can't remember which. He makes his way back to Hamas and he begins to have questions. Is Israel really our enemy? Is America really our enemy? And as he returned to the organization of Hamas, he began to see the, the Hamasians, uh, the group of Hamas, was torturing their own people, trying to see who was a double agent. And all of a sudden, he begins to wonder, what allegiances do I have? Why am I part of this? The group I'm part of that my father founded is torturing our friends, our colleagues. It was in the middle of this that a friend of the son of Hamas, Masab, invites him to a Bible study. Now, how bold would that be? You know, I just met this guy. He's the son of Hamas. I thought it might be great to show up and do a little Bible study together. A guy invites him to a Bible study. Doesn't kill him. Shows up to the Bible study. And for the first time in his life, he's reading about a Jesus. Because if you haven't read the, the Quran, it's Jesus in the Quran. But very different portrayal of Jesus. He's reading the, the words of Jesus in the, in the New Testament. The Injil, I think they call it. And he is struck 
when he sees the words, Jesus saying, but I tell you, forgive your enemies. He says in the book, he's never in his life heard of a concept like this. Think about what we have in America having, oh yeah, of course, we've heard that. We may not do it real well, but we've heard of it. He says he's never even heard of the concept of forgiving your enemies. So much so that he actually begins to read about the part where Jesus dies on the cross and Jesus looks at his enemies in the face of that. And whether they were infidels or pagans or whatever term he might use from his background, he's like, he doesn't hate them. He's dying for them. He doesn't hate them. He's forgiving them. And now his all his allegiances begin to change. He said for years or at least it was months, he would go out into the, the mountains by himself with a, a Bible in one hand and a Quran in the other, and he would begin to compare the two. And he came to believe that the Jesus of the Bible, and the Bible itself was consistent, was true, and the Jesus that he described was the one come from God. He became a follower of Jesus. So much so that he worked as a double agent to try and stop the work of Hamas for many, many years. He stopped many of their attacks. Because of his faith in Jesus, because he was impacted by a man in command of forgiveness as demonstrated on the cross. He impacts a centurion, he impacts the son of Hamas, enough so that he risks enough to put himself with a book out there to describe his journey. Talk about the death threat he must get. But there's a third thing that strikes him, the centurion, is that Jesus is a man in command of purpose. When the centurion and those with him, so notice there's those with him are witnessing this, They were guarding Jesus, and they saw an earthquake when he died. And things that had happened, he is truly thunderstruck by the earthquake, by the darkness. And they, the centurion and his buddies, fellow soldiers, feared, what have we done? Saying, truly this was the Son of God. Another historic record account, Mark says, when the centurion stood opposite him and saw that he cried out like this with this loud commanding voice. There was something about that that made him go, man, truly this was the Son of God. To which, because we've seen so many movies of people with British accents saying this, uh, you go, oh yeah, I think I saw the the, the Risen movie or or I, I heard the trailer for it when I was watching a good movie, you know, whatever it was. We don't realize how significant this phrase is. We saw Son of God. At any time, the centurion could have reached into his pocket and pulled out a coin, and he would know exactly who Rome thinks the Son of God is. Written on the very coins of Rome, it said, Tiberius Caesar, the worshipful Son of God, Julius Caesar, and High Priest. See, when Julius Caesar died, there was a comet that appeared in the air at his death. And the Romans believed that he was God himself, and that he had ascended on high, and the comet was a sign. So he sent his son, Tiberius, to live on earth as God's representative of the gods, of his father, Julius. And therefore, the phrase son of God did not apply to anyone except Tiberius. To say that someone was the son of God was a capital offense. You could be killed. It it would, this is probably a bad example, it would be like in, in American culture, you only play one song for the president. You're not allowed to to play the song for anyone else. Well, that phrase, the Son of God, was only used of Tiberius. And in a violent Roman culture, if you use that phrase for anyone else, literally, if if all the soldiers hadn't been convinced at once, it would have looked like this. Surely that guy's the Son of God. (laughs) This 
is, a, I mean, the risk to say that out loud. That this Roman centurion, who's probably stabbed a few guys for coming against Rome, would say this out loud is shocking. Let alone to have them say it. A whole group of people watching Jesus commanding death saying, that guy, that, not Tiberius, he, not Tiberius, is the son of God was earth shattering. This was a guy with purpose, with forgiveness, a man in command of all three. And it is amazing how forgiveness can impact folks. Several years ago, I told you the story that my brother and I were estranged for four or five years and through a huge misunderstanding of which, you know, I would say, as we all do, you know, I would say I was 95% right, maybe 99. Uh, he would probably say that I was 90% wrong. And so that's the nature of all conflict, right? <clears throat> so I had done my best to try and reconcile. He wasn't open to it. So I'm like, well, you can't make somebody reconcile. And for weeks, for months, and then for years, I felt like God, every time I reflected on the cross, said, look how far I went to reconcile with you. I came to earth. I died on the cross. I allowed myself to be tortured because I so wanted to reconcile with, with you, Chad, and you were stubborn. And you weren't on my side. And you were a traitor. And you wanted your own way. And you think you're actually better than you really are. In fact, Chad, this is a great example of you thinking you're better than you really are. You really think you're 90%, 90% right. Okay, God, it's 98. No. And that's the problem in the human heart. We put ourselves in the place of God. We think we're better than we are. That's the real reason Jesus came. He said, and if I did all of that to reconcile with you, I want you to keep trying to reconcile with your brother. If I can forgive my enemies, you can forgive your brother. All right. So I began writing letters every quarter unreturned, emails unreturned. Two years went by, three years went by. At the fourth year, I happened to be in L.A. doing a, uh, a TV show, and I brought my son with because we were going to go while we were there to uh, Universal Studios. And so I tried one more time. My brother is a video editor uh, in Hollywood. I said, hey, I'm in town. Do you want to meet? We'd love to talk. He said, okay. So he, the only time that worked, I'm not a morning person. It was 5.30 in the morning at what I will describe as Mel's Diner, if you remember that old show. And I asked my son, who was 14 at the time, I said, would you come with me? He said, oh, I don't want to get up that early. Why would I want to come see you and, and, and your brother fight? I said, here's what I want you to watch. I want you to see me trying to reconcile. You don't have to say anything. And I want you, after we're done, to tell me if I was humble, tell me if I was open, tell me if I was really trying. You tell me if you saw something I couldn't, didn't. So he sat in the booth. My brother and I began the two-hour morning discussion, and I'm doing everything I can to try and find overlaps, to find areas where I could, I think I was wrong there. Okay. That's not exactly what I remember happening, but okay. I'm sorry that I created, okay. I tried to own every piece that I could. All right, now tell me why you came across that. So finally we decided that we'd be on speaking turns again. Ryan says, well, I'm going to go uh, grab the bathroom. He heads over to the bathroom, and I look at my son. He's like, well, that was awkward. I burst into tears. Just, it's so hard to try and meet somebody else when your view of reality and theirs. I'm just, so I'm recomposing myself. And uh, we, um, 
I've been talking since. It's been several years now that we're back on speaking terms. And, and so on the car riding back, I said, now, was I open? Yeah. What, did I tr- apologize and did it feel genuine? Dad, you did. I said, well, you know what? It, it was weird, May, for me to invite you, but you just never get a front row seat to this kind of real stuff. And this could have gone really bad, and in which case you could be saying, Dad, you were a jerk and you need to go. I said, but I wanted you to have a front row seat to how hard it is to reconcile. And I got to tell you, my motivation to reconcile was not, it's the right thing to do. That would not have been enough willpower. My motivation was not, it'd really be worth having a good relationship again with your brother. Oh yeah, so we can call twice a year with, hey, how's it going, happy birthday. So it wasn't like the value of the relationship was worth it. Hopefully it will be since then. It wasn't like how right he was was the motivator. It wasn't because it's the right thing to do. The only motivator was because somebody went to that extent to reconcile with me. How could I not go to that extent to reconcile with somebody else? In light of how patient somebody had been with me, how could I not be this patient with my own family member? In light of how compassionate and merciful God had been to me, how could I not extend mercy and compassion and forgiveness? See, this is a totally different kind of king. Most kings were kings of power who exhorted their power to demand other people's allegiance. Most kings would sacrifice their servants for the sake of the king. This king sacrificed himself for the sake of his servants. In fact, I'd forgotten about that story with my brother because it's been many years. And so recently I was visiting with somebody who had a tragedy in their family. And as they were talking, they said, you know, I've been thinking a lot in the middle of this tragedy about the story you told your brother several years ago. I'm like, oh, really? You see, I realize I've got some things in, in my relationships that I haven't reconciled. And I wonder if God's using this tragedy to remind me that I need to pursue some people in my life in the same way. The power of something genuine, something real, something hard, something difficult, and somebody trying to, trying to pursue what's right in the midst of what's wrong in this world, it sticks with people. It's compelling. And rather than crucifixion breaking Jesus down, as it was meant to do, it brought Jesus out. What happens to you when we dip you in hot water? What comes out of you when circumstances get difficult? I know what comes out of me. Impatience, anger, bitterness. I try and change the hot water. God, why is this water so hot? Because I'm trying to bring out of you some broken stuff that I need to work on. That we need to talk about. Some of that broken stuff that comes out of you, that bitterness, that resentment, that jealousy, that's the stuff that you need forgiveness for. That's why I'm on that cross. And I put you in hot water at times to bring that stuff out because you can pretend you're nicer than you really are, better than you really are. And so I dip you in hot water to bring out what's on the inside so you realize that you even need forgiveness. Oh. And you realize that you don't need another chance. You need to fix what's coming out of you. You've got a problem in your heart. And that's why I came. And when you look at the cross, you see what came out of Jesus' heart when you dipped him in hot water. Jesus says, I'll exchange you. I'll make a trade. I'll trade you what comes out of your life when you're dipped in hot water for what came out of my life when I was dipped in hot water. Now, that's quite an exchange. I'll give you peace with God. You give me all your bitterness, all your resentment, all your I know better than, than God how to run the world, world. And I'll give you peace. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you a right standing with me. That's what the main message of the Bible is all about. 
So much so that I told you when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was like him giving people cliff notes. In case you're wondering what I'm doing here, there's a book, there's a there's a passage in our psalm book that tells you exactly why I'm here. And one of the ways Jesus was able, in the midst of that crucifixion, to keep his mind centered on God and on God's purpose in the face of every reason to complain and every reason to be mad at God is he is reciting over and over in his head one particular psalm. Jewish rabbis often had one psalm from the book of Psalms that they wanted to be meditating on when they died. And Jesus had one. It was Psalms 22, written in 1000 B.C. by David. And while he's on the cross, he's reciting that, reminding himself of his purpose. And the opening line is, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you gone so far from helping me, from the words of my groaning? So he quotes David, so anyone can say, Turn to the book, it'll tell you why I'm here. If you go down a few verses... What's Jesus doing? He's doing what David did. I'm trusting in the Lord and let him rescue me. Let him deliver me since he delights in him. God is delighting in me right now in what I'm doing and why I'm doing it and why I'm here. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. My strength is dried up like a pot shard. My tongue clings to my jaws. Now imagine Jesus in his strength is reciting this over and over in his head. And as he does, it prompts him to say a few things. He gets to the first verse. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Goes down a couple verses. He trusted in the Lord. Into your hands I'm committing my spirit. He's reciting a little longer. Gets to the part about his mother being nursed with his mother's breast. Oh, mom. Mother. Your son. John, take care of her. John. Your mom. He's referencing this verse. This, the Bible is giving him strength to have purpose in the middle of the hot water. It's giving him strength to have an honorable death, to keep his purpose. And he keeps reading. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue clings to my jaws. Oh, my tongue. Yeah. I thirst. And they get him a drink. And look what it says. It's exactly why Jesus is here. I can count all my bones. And unlike every other Roman crucifixion, where they crushed the bones to get your body off, Jesus' bones were not broken, just as David had predicted. They look at and stare at me. You know, they are. They divide my garments among me. The very centurion watching did this thing. This centurion was in the book a thousand years ago. For my clothing, they cast lots. That's exactly what they're doing. And in the midst of what seems totally out of control, he's saying this is exactly what David predicted. This is exactly what I've been thinking about. This is exactly what I knew would happen. God, I am right in the center of your will. Dying for people who don't even like you. And that was my mission. He gets to the end. He says, I will declare your name to the brethren. The reason I'm here is to declare your, your name to all the brethren, everybody in the world, that they will declare his, not your righteousness, God's righteousness, that God offers to give you his righteousness when you give him all your failings. They will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. Who will be born? Who's he talking about? He's talking about you and me. He's on the cross meditating, saying, oh, that's right. I'm doing this for people yet to be born that they will know what he has done. Which might have been the prompting from say, he has done. It is finished. If a Roman centurion, if a general Maximus can be impressed by a death, I would encourage you to pursue and think about this. Because it gives you the power to forgive, the power to reconcile, the power to have peace with God, the power to know that this is true. It's not just a nice story. So I'm going to close today in prayer. 
And maybe in that prayer, you want to ask yourself, what comes out of me when I'm dipped in hot water? What came out of Jesus when he was dipped out of hot water? And do I want to make an exchange? Do I want that kind of power and strength in my life? Let's pray. You can pray along in your own words if you want, but maybe you want to start by just being honest and saying, God, there's been a lot of stuff coming out of me as I've been dipped in the hot water of circumstances that I'm not proud of. Maybe you want to say, God, even though some of it hasn't come out of my mouth, my thought life has been cruel and mean-spirited and self-centered. God, my secrets, my conscience. God, I want to make a trade for what came out of you. God, I, I invite your wisdom. I invite your forgiveness. I invite your courage into my life. I want in me what I saw in you at the cross. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today for Custom Home and this uh, neat journey. We invite you to come back for Easter. Uh, If you have not got tickets yet, please grab those on your way out. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on the way out. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you for Easter. Thanks again.